0: Chapter 15 of Master of Life and Death by Robert Silverberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Walton looked up at the public relations man and said, How much do you know about whirls, Lee? Not a hell of a lot. I never watched the things myself. They're bad for the eyes. Walton smiled. That makes you a nonconformist, doesn't it? According to the figures I have here, the nightly Kaleido Whirl programs are top-ranked on the ratings charts. Maybe so, Percy said cautiously. I still don't like to watch them. What goes, Roy? I've suddenly become very interested in Kaleido Whirls myself, Walton said. He leaned back and added casually, I think they may be used as propaganda devices. My brother's reaction to one gave me the idea a couple of days ago at the bronze room. For the past hour or so, I've been studying whirls in terms of information theory. Did you know that it's possible to get a message across via whirl? Of course, Percy gasped, but the Communications Commission would never let you get away with it. By the time the Communications Commission found out what had been done, Walton said calmly, we wouldn't be doing it anymore. They wouldn't be able to prove a thing. Sarcastically, he added, after spending a lifetime in public relations, you're not suddenly getting a rush of ethics, are you? Well, let's have the details in. Simple enough, Walton said. We feed through a verbal message, something like, Hooray for Popeek! Or, I don't want war with the Durna." We flash it on the screen for, say, a microsecond, then cover it up with whirl patterns. Wait two minutes, then flash it again. Plenty of noise, but the signal will get through if we flash it often enough. And it'll get through down deep, Percy said. Subliminally. They won't even realize that they've been indoctrinated, but suddenly they'll have a new set of opinions about Popeek and Durna. He shuddered. Roy, I hate to think what would happen if someone else gets to thinking about this and puts on his own kaleidohorl show. I've thought of that. After the Derna crisis is over— after we've put over our point, I'm going to frame someone into putting on a propaganda whirl, and then catch him in the act. That ought to be sufficient to wise up the Communications Commission. In other words, Percy said, you're willing to use this technology now, but since you don't want anyone else to use it, you're willing to give up future use of it yourself as soon as the Dirna trouble is over. Exactly. Walton shoved the stack of textbooks over to the PR man. Read these through first. Get yourself familiar with the setup. Then buy a Kaleido Whirl hour and get a bunch of our engineers in there to handle the special inserts. Okay? It's nasty, but I like it. When do you want the program to begin? Tomorrow. Tonight if you can work it. And set up a poll of some kind to keep check on the program's effectiveness i want two messages collide a world alternately one supporting popeek one demanding a peaceful settlement with the aliens have your pulse takers feel out the populace on those two propositions and report any fluctuation to me immediately got it oh one more thing i suspect you'll have some extra responsibilities as of tomorrow lee Eh? your office will have one additional medium to deal with telefax I'm buying Citizen, and we're going to turn it into a pro Popeek rag. Percy's mouth dropped in astonishment. Then he started to laugh. You're a wonder, Roy, a genuine wonder. Moments after Percy departed, Noel Hervey, the security and exchange shyster, called. Well, Walton asked. Hervey looked preoccupied. I've successfully spent a couple of hundred million of Popeek's money in the last half-hour, Roy. You now own the single biggest block of citizen stock there is. How much is that? 152,000 shares. Approximately 33%. 33%? What about the other 18%? Patience, lad, patience. I know my job. I snapped up all the small holdings there were very quietly it cost me a pretty penny to farm out the purchases too why'd you do that Walton asked because this has to be handled very gingerly you know the ownership setup of citizen no well it goes like this amalgamated Telefax owns a 26 percent chunk and Horace Merlin owns 25 percent since Merlin owns amalgamated He votes 51% of the stock, even though it isn't registered that way. The other 49% doesn't matter, Merlin figures. So I'm busy gathering up as much of it as I can for you, under a half a dozen different brokerage names. I doubt that I can get it all, but I figured on rounding up at least 49%. Then I'll approach Merlin with a big deal, and sucker him into selling me 6% of his citizen stock. He'll check around find out that the remaining stock is splintered ninety-seven different ways, and he'll probably let go of a little of his, figuring he still has control. "'Suppose he doesn't?' Walton asked. "'Don't worry,' Hervey said confidently. "'He will. I've got a billion smackers to play with, don't I? I'll cook up a deal so juicy he can't resist it, and all he'll have to do to take a flyer will be to peel off a little of his citizen stock.' The second he does that, I'll transfer all the fragmented stock to you. With your controlling majority of 51%, you boot Merlin off the board, and the telefax sheet is yours. Simple? Clear? Perfectly, Walton said. Okay, keep in touch. He broke the contact and walked to the window. The street was packed with people scrambling in every direction, like so many ants moving at random over the ground. Many of them clutched telefact sheets. The most popular one was The Citizen. Many of them would gape and goggle at Kaleido world programs come evening. Walton suddenly tightened his fist. In just that way, he thought, Popeek has tightened its hold on the public by capturing the mass media. If Herve's confidence had any justification in truth, they would own the leading anti Popeek telefact sheet by tomorrow. With subtle handling over the course of several days, they could swing the slant of Citizen around to a pro-Popeak stand, and do it so surreptitiously that it would seem as though the Sheet had never had any other policy. As for Kaleidohorl's subterfuge, that, Walton admitted, was hitting below the belt. But he had resolved that all would be fair during the current crisis. There would be time enough for morality after the war had been averted. At about 14.30 that day, Walton took advantage of a lull in activities to have a late lunch at the bronze room. He felt that he had to get away from the confining walls of his office for at least some part of the afternoon. The bronze room had adopted Cerise as its color scheme for the day. Walton selected a private room, lunched lightly on baked chlorella steak and filtered rum, and dialed a 12-minute nap. When the alarm system in the foam-web couch stirred him to wakefulness, he stretched happily. Some of the choking tension had been washed out of him. Thoughtfully, he switched on the electroluminescent kaleidoscope and stared at it. It worked on the same principle as the kaleidohirl programs beamed over the public video, except that the bronze room provided closed-channel beaming of its own kaleidoscope patterns, tending more to soft greens and pale rose, They were on a higher aesthetic plane, certainly, than the jagged melodramatic purples and reds the video channels sent out for popular consumption. But it was with a certain new apprehension that Walton now studied the kaleidoscopic pattern. Now that he knew what a dangerous weapon the flashing colors could be, how could he be certain that the bronze room proprietors were not flashing some scarcely seen subliminal command at him this very moment? He turned the set off with a brusque gesture the ends justify the means a nice homily he thought which allowed him to do almost anything it brought to mind the rationale of Ivan Karamazov without God everything is permissible But both God and Dostoevsky seemed to be obsolete these days. He reminded himself God was now a lean young man with an office on the twenty-ninth floor of the Cullen building and as for Dostoevsky all he did was write books and therefore could not have been of any great importance he felt a tremor of self-doubt maybe it had been unwise to let Kaleido propaganda loose on the world once unleashed it might not be so easily caged again he realized that as soon as the Popeek campaign was over he would have to make sure some method was devised for pre-checking all public and closed-channel kaleidoscopic patterns the most damnable part of such propaganda techniques he knew was that you could put over almost any idea at all without arousing suspicion on the part of the viewer he wouldn't know that he'd been tampered with you could tell him so after the new idea had been planted but by then he wouldn't believe you walton dialed another filtered rum and lifted it to his lips with a slightly shaky hand Mr. Ludwig of the United Nations called while you were out, sir, Walton was told upon returning to his office. He'd like you to call him back. Very well. Make the connection for me. When Ludwig appeared, Walton said, Sorry I missed your call. What's happening? Special session of the Security Council just broke up. They passed a resolution unanimously and shipped it on to the Assembly. There's going to be an immediate hearing to determine the new permanent head of Popeek. Walton clamped his lips together. After a moment, he said, How come? The Dernan crisis. They don't want a mere interim director handling things. They feel the man dealing with the aliens ought to have full U.N. blessing. Should I interpret that to mean I get the job automatically? I couldn't swear to it, said Ludwig general consensus certainly favors you to continue I'd advise you to show up at the hearing in person and present your program in detail otherwise they may stick some smooth-talking politico in your place the noise is slated to start at 1100 day after tomorrow the 18th I'll be there Walton said thanks for the tip he chewed the end of his stylus for a moment then hastily scribbled down the appointment as of now he knew he couldn't worry too strongly about events taking place the day after tomorrow not with fred arriving for a showdown the next morning the next day began busily enough hervey was the first to call the citizens sewed up roy i had dinner with merlin last night and weaseled him out of four percent of citizen stock in exchange for a fancy tip on the new monorail project out nevada way He was grinning all over the place. But I'll bet he's grinning out of the other side of his mouth this morning. Is it all arranged? Walton asked. In the bag. I was up at 0700 and consolidated my holdings. Your holdings, I mean. 47% of the stock I had fragmented in a dozen different outfits. The other 2% outstanding belonged to rich widows who wouldn't sell. I lumped the 47% together in your name then completed the transfer on Merlin's four percent, and stuck that in there, too. Citizen Telefax is now the property of Popeek, Roy. Fine work. How much did it cost? Then he said, $483 and some change, plus my usual five percent commission, which in this case comes to about two and a quarter million. But I offered you five million, Walton said. That offer still goes. You want me to lose my license? I spent years placing bribes to get a shyster's license, and you want me to throw it away for a couple of extra 1000000 Ah Uh-uh. I'll settle for two and a quarter, and damn good doing, I call that, for a day's work. Walton grinned. You win, and Sue Llewellyn will be glad to know that it didn't cost the whole billion to grab Citizen. You'll be over with the papers, won't you? About ten hundred, the shyster said, "I've got to follow through for Merlin on his monorail deal first. The poor sucker see you in an hour right rapidly. Walton scribbled memos as soon as the papers were in his hands. He'd served notice on Merlin that the stockholders' meeting was to be held at once. After that, he'd depose Merlin, fire the present citizens' editors and packed the Telefax sheets with men loyal to Popeek. Fred was due at 1100. Walton buzzed Keeler, the new security chief, and said, "Keeler, I have an appointment with someone at 1100. I want you to station three men outside my door and frisk him for weapons as he comes in. We'd do that anyway, sir. It's standard procedure now. Good, but I want you to be one of the three and make sure the two who come with you are tight-mouthed. I don't want any news breaks on this. Right, sir. Okay, be there at 10.50 or so. About 11.15 I'm going to press the door opener, and I want you and your men to break in, arrest my visitor, and spirit him off to the deepest dungeon security has, and leave him there. If Martinez wants to know what's going on, tell him I'll take responsibility. Keeler looked vaguely puzzled, but merely nodded. We frisk him first, then let him talk to you for fifteen minutes. Then we come in on signal and take him away. I've got it. This man's a dangerous anti popeek conspirator. Make sure he's drugged before he gets out of my office. I don't want him making noise. The enunciator sounded. Man from communications has a message for you, Mr. Walton. He switched over from Keeler to communications and said, "Go ahead." From McLeod, Mr. Walton, we just got it. It says arriving Nairobi on the 18th. We'll be in your office with the Durnan following morning if he feels like making the trip. Otherwise, will you come to Nairobi? Tell him yes if necessary. Walton said. He glanced at his watch. oh nine seventeen nine seventeen. It looked like it was going to be hectic all day, and Fred was due at 1100. The End of Chapter 15 of Master of Life and Death by Robert Silverberg